Good morning, and thank you, choir. That was really wonderful all, all morning long to be able to, to hear you all sing. You worked very hard. I know as I saw you come here most Saturdays as I was trying to finish up for, for Sunday morning, seeing you all roll in and, and practice, and well, it was, it was worth it. So thank you all for that. Now, in April of this past year, Elon Musk um, announced that an offer that to buy the social media platform Twitter for $44 billion, with a B, dollars. Now, for some, they were excited, hoping that he was going to, you know, relieve some of the injustices that they felt Twitter was doing. For others, though, they, were, they, they took us to back and were at, horrified at that. $44 billion dollars. And immediately their mind went to, well, what else could that have been used for? And many articles came up, well, maybe, you know, with that money, they could have solved world hunger or a host of, all, of other issues. Now, my, what I don't want to do today is debate whether, you know, it was good or just or anything of that nature. What I want to talk about is, well, where did that impulse come from? This idea that this famous, powerful, the, at the time, the m richest man in the world, and people were, you know, wagging the finger at him, well, no, you should not have used your money that way. You should have used it to help other people who would give you no benefit for yourself. The idea that he should look after the poor, and even if you, you know, disagree with their assessment, the idea that people would think that this would hold merit it would sway people, it would, that it was a good point to make. Well, why? Ultimately, it's because our minds, our hearts, and our values have been shaped by the person of Jesus. And whether you believe in him or not, whether you accept him as God in the flesh came, you know, coming down 2,000 years ago to dwell among us, or if you just believe that you is some itinerant rabbi who you know, wandered around the Judean uh, landscape, Either way, your values, the things that you hold as honorable or dishonorable, the things that you hold as good and noble or, or not so, have been shaped by this, this person named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the means by which Jesus came. You know, it was God in the flesh. He came in the likeness of man. He dwelt among us as, as we are. And because of that, what we see is an emergence of this idea of, of human rights, that, that we have been grabbed into this story that gives people value that goes beyond our um, ability to produce, beyond our usefulness. We have been grafted into this story about the, the very nature as God has come and taken, taken on flesh, that he has become one of us, we see all the more clearly that people matter. And last week we talked about the manner in which Christ came. He came humbly. He emptied himself of power and status. He came unto the lowest of us, living among an oppressed people and dying the death of a slave, suffering shame, Christ came. 
We've been transformed to believe that humility is not a shameful or embarrassing thing, but humility is a good and virtuous thing that men and women of power and prestige are expected to be humble. And before the, Christ, the Christian revolution began, and even in parts of the world today that have not have a Christian heritage, the idea that the powerful should stoop is seen as absurd. And today, we are going to be talking about the purpose of his coming. And we're going to be turning in our Bibles to John 3.16, and perhaps you don't need to. Among all the verses of Scripture, this one may be uh, the most well-known But here we see in John 3.16, this statement, this encapsulation of, of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We see we see here, well, you know, it's right on the surface that God has given a gift to the world. He's given his son to the world. Now, a gift, and gifts are great to get, right? Uh, you know, I like to receive gifts. Most of the time, you like to receive gifts, except you don't probably like to receive gifts when everyone's sitting there, you know, watching your reaction, and you can't hide disappointment when you get something you don't want. But gifts in general, we like to receive. And gifts speak to us. They tell us something, you know, as the recipient of the gift, receiving the gift says something about me, especially if the person knows me well. Right? It can tell me, well, I matter, I'm valued, I'm respected. And sometimes if the person knows me very well, it can even tell me more about myself, or at least how they perceive me. Right? You know, if so, you know, I have a friend who comes by and drops off a gift, and I can tell, as, as most people can, you know, this is a book. <laughs> they know me well. And now... Books are always one of those hard things because if somebody doesn't know you that well and they give you a book and it's just like, well, I don't really want to read that. We feel this obligation. But this person, let's say, they know me really well, you know, a really good friend who comes and drops this off and says, hey, you know, this is for you. I saw it and I thought of you and I get really excited because, you know, well, if they thought of me when they saw it. So, you know, I go to unwrap it excitedly looking for, for what's to come and unveil the, the book and I, and I find from good looking to being good, overcoming vanity. It's, it's not what I wanted. But you know, maybe, maybe a family member will know me a little bit better. So I open up another book. A lot of people get me books. And I find from my, my sweet family members, from brats to behaving, parenting that actually works. Awesome. And maybe my wife would know me a little bit better. And I open up another book. So Merry Christmas to me as I get so many books. But... What I find here is the Christmas classic, 10 Easy Steps to Overcoming Narcissism Now. <laughs> now, these books, rude, 
But you know, at some level, they, they are saying something to me, if I'm willing to hear. They say something about me that's at least apparent to the people around me. And if they love me, and if they know me, if they care about me, I, I should as- assume that the assessment is correct. That maybe there's something lurking within me. There's some area of my life that is deficient where when they see, you know, 10 easy steps to overcoming narcissism, they're like, that needs to go to Pastor Aaron. Or any of these other books, well, I should take notice, shouldn't I? And while these may be the, the worst possible gifts, please don't give gifts like this. You know, if I can receive them humbly, if I can get past perhaps the initial anger or sadness or, or the, the pride that, that results from reading somebody giving me these books, well, perhaps they can be the best gift of somebody who, who's, who loves me and says, you know, I see what your need is. Here's a solution. Here's a help. And when we read this idea that God had has given his son to the world, what is, his, what is that saying about the world? What is that saying about us? If you take a moment and step back and think about the nature of God giving his son to the world, it perhaps may be the most offensive statement we can read about God's assessment of the world. It's like he's standing in heaven saying, you know, I, I see you, I've been watching you for a while, you're not really getting this whole, you know, image of God thing right. I can see that you're kind of a mess. And that if you're going to be fixed, you can't do it yourself. You're unable to. You're unwilling to. That what you're designed to be who I've designed you to become, and, you know, the world as it is, that you by yourselves are completely unable to fix it. I have to send my son. I have to send one who is not like you are to come down and to fix this mess. And how have we reacted to such a thing? Largely, we've rejected this message, haven't we? And throughout history, we've seen, you know, many movements that start with the premise, we can absolutely fix ourselves. We just need better politicians, a more formed electorate. You know, get rid of some of that bureaucratic bloat in the the government, and, you know, then we'll, we'll get down to brass tacks and be able to fix these things. Maybe the scientists will. We'll have some new technologies and, you know, overcome these obstacles that we've had. Maybe we just get our education system in check. Then we'll finally be fixed. And so throughout history, we've had revolution after revolution, many bloody, some not, all with this premise that, you know, if we just fix this thing, well, then everything will be okay. We'll get our act together. We'll fulfill what God has called us to be. We'll establish that utopia that we dream of. And we're shocked every time it doesn't work, aren't we? The oppressors then become the oppressed. 
and the oppressed become the victimizers. And we, we read what the Pulitzer Prize historian Barbara Tuckman once noted, revolutions produce other men, not new men. And the same problems that seem to persist, they do so again and again in different ways, but they keep on. And Christmas reminds us that we are so bad. We are so inept. We are so unable to do what the Lord has called us to do, to become the people that we are called to be, that God himself had to descend down the stairway of time, wrap himself in flesh, and dwell among us. The infinite had to become the length of a span. The eternal one had to be born. Because we were not able to do what we were supposed to do. And no amount of moral dictates from on high or re-educational schemes or new government approaches have been able to solve the problem that we set out. That all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put us back together again. That while we were unable, that God had to provide. So gifts, they tell us something not just... They tell us something about the recipient of the gifts, particularly if they're known well. They can also tell us something true about the giver, the nature of the giver. And we see this here again. What does the the text say? That God loved the world. That this gift, despite it being about you know, our inability to do the things that God has called us to do, and inability to become the people that God has called us to do, at the end of the day, that yet, the declaration from heaven for the world that, is that it's loved. And in the Gospel of John, the world is, is always in some ways a negative term. It is life organized without reference to God. The world is hostile to his rule and reign, and yet it is the object of God's love. Now, the other day, uh, a while back, I remember I found the found internet message board that was uh, full of people who were just, you know, lambasting, you know, Christianity, and, and the point of their contention was that, you know, Christianity, in their, in their minds, it stinks because it makes you feel bad about yourself. It calls you a sinner. It says that you can't fix yourself. It says that, you know, you're unable to do these things. And, and then they took it another step further and what they thought would be the next logical step of Christianity and says, well, because you're broken and messed up and you're unable to fix yourself, well, therefore, well, you must feel really bad about yourself. But there's this tension that we can affirm that, yes, at some level, that we are so bad, so unable, so broken, that God had to come and dwell among us. That God had to be wrapped in flesh and to suffer as we do. And even unto the death on the cross. But yet, we can say, with just as much affirmation, yet we are so loved that God was pleased to do it. That God was pleased he, to send the Son, Jesus. That God was pleased to suffer with us and for us. And if God was simply this moralistic judge, 
standing afar and saying, you know, reach my standards, you dirty, wretched sinners, the incarnation would never have happened. If it were merely be good as, you know, be this good, and then I'll pay you mind, Christ wouldn't have never come. God would have never dwelt among us. And what we see here on Christmas is this twofold realization that, yes, we are so bad that the Son had to be given, but so loved that he was given freely and joyfully for the people of God, for the world, for those who have shaken their fist at heaven, yet God has said, I am going to love you anyway. And we see this here at Christmas. Reminds me of the old you know, C.S. Lewis quote that he says, you know, it costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills, it cost him crucifixion. That all that we see in this world that God had could create and without any cost to himself, and yet to, to draw men and women, to transform lives, to convert our wills into ones that actually do as he's called us to do and to be those he's called us to be, it cost the Son of God the cross. And yet it was freely, it was freely done and given. So, you know, as we see the gift of God to the world, you know, it, yes, it says something about us of our brokenness, but it also says something about our belovedness. But then there's a call, a, a nature, a, a new nature of those who have received this gift, a, a nature of gratefulness, of gratitude, and I would even go so far as to say of ones that go forward and doing the th- the very thing that God has done for us to go forward into the world to do. And so as we look at the purpose of God's, of God's sending of the Son, it is His compassion, His love towards those who are broken and hurting, those unable to fix their own problems. And God has freely given His Son to us. Now this, in, you know, as the gospel went forward from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and they're proclaiming this idea that, that God became flesh, dwelt among us, and suffered for us, that we could be made right with him. Well, well this, in many ways, was a new absurd idea. And this idea that people were called to, to go out into the world and, and to care for the lost and the least, and the broken, was equally absurd. This wasn't done in the ancient world. This wasn't, this wasn't done in, in the Greco-Roman world that pretty much held the entire uh, you know, known, known universe for them. Yes, there was giving, but there was giving for people who, well, they could pay you back. The uh, the atheist New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, he, he, in talking about the, this the Christian revolution, and he's somebody who's hostile to the, you know, the claims of Christianity, he, he remarks about you know, how in the ancient world that if you wanted to give some money away is always to someone in your same socioeconomic class or to build a public building. It was to promote your own status. 
the idea of helping the poor was unheard of. It was a joke. He said, until, until Christians went out and started to care for the, the poor and the hurting and the lost and lonely, this was not done. You give to people who can repay you back. You give to people who you may need something from later. Or you put your name on a monument so your name stands for all time. But the idea of helping the poor, the lost, the broken, the, as Jesus says, the least of these, no, you don't do that. And it's from, you know, it's from this that we see that how Christians' behavior was so different from the rest of the ancient world. It was Christians who developed the idea of a hospital where people who are sick, and particularly people who are sick and unable to afford a private doctor, could come and, and be and helped and healed. Yeah, there were sick bays for, for you know, wounded soldiers so they could get back onto the battlefield, but for the, just anybody? No, that was Christians. It was Christians who went into the garbage dumps to rescue babies left to die of exposure. It was Christians who gave of their money to help the poor and the needy, to make sure that, that those who were suffering and dying of starvation had bread. This was not done in the ancient world. This was absurd in the ancient world. And yet, for us, we take it to granted, take it for granted that it's a good thing. It's only in the, in the shadow of Christ would anyone ever dare to look to Elon Musk and say, you shouldn't spend $44 billion on a social media platform. Not when there's needs. And whether you think it was justified or not is beside the point. The idea that that would even be raised as an objection is because we're living in the shadow of Christ. Friedrich Nietzsche. In looking at the, uh, um, you know, the, the ways that well, he was basically advocating for society to move away from its Christian heritage, to throw off the shackles of Christianity, and to move forward into a, a new dimension of, of reality. He looked at former, you know, other atheist philosophers like Spinoza, Marx, or Darwin, and, and believe it, you know, with disdain because they wanted to throw off the, the, what, you know, the, the faith of Christianity but holding on to its ethics. He reminds them that when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the, the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. That is an aberration to do as Christianity teaches. And so he, he likens it, he says, Christianity has taken the part of the weak, the low, and the botched. It has made an ideal out of antagonism to all the self-preservative instincts of a sound life. He says, look around you. See how... You know, see how the world works. You know, in evolution, the weak die for the benefit of the strong. That society is made better as the weak, the lowly, and the botched are gotten rid of. When their weak genetics leave our gene pool. Where the strong don't have to, to waste their time and energy and money to carry them around. If we want to be better, well, you get rid of the weak. Let them, let them die. Pity and compassion are an aberration, he goes on to tell us. And in Christianity, what we proclaim is not the survival of the fittest, but that the fittest was sacrificed for the weakest. 
the one who lived the ideal and yet for our sake was hanged on the cross. And he so identifies himself with the weakest, the lowest, and the botched that he says, what you've done to them, you've done unto me. What you've done unto them, you've done unto me. And for Nisha, as he's looking at you know, his fellow atheists who, who refuse to, to look so unblinkingly into the reality of a, of a, a dawning of a new era apart from the the moral teaching of Christ, this is what he sees. As Tom Holland, the atheist historian, notes, he's like, like Paul, Nisha knew the cross to be a scandal, but unlike Paul, he found it repellent. He wanted wanted the people to follow the biological law. The strong eat the weak. Those on top stay there. The weak can leave the gene pool. But that's not the Christian belief, is it? That's not the Christian call for for how we are to live. We have identified ourselves with the low and the botched and the weak. Because Christ has done it for us, hasn't he? And it's easy for us to say, you know, those, particularly for, for those who, in some ways, it was their own choices that got them where they are. Don't do drugs. Make good decisions. Don't gamble your wealth on on these things. Look what's going to happen to you. And these may be true objections at points. But what's equally true is that we, we went so far as to make bad decisions to make us the weak and the lowly and the botched. And God did not stand apart and say, well, just get your act together. Just make good decisions. Just don't do what you're doing. Be better. No. For God loved us, the world, those hostile to his rule and reign, those antagonistic to to his way of life. He loved the world so that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so Christians, we, are, we have a freedom to disagree about how to care for the lost and the weak and the lonely. But we do not have the freedom to disagree as to whether we should do that. This is our calling. This is our inheritance. This is, what, that, this is who we are as a people. And if you're somebody who is fiscally conservative, and, you know, you, you believe that, you know, the help for the poor filtered through the government doesn't help as, as it should, that it's too filled with bureaucratic blue. Or if you believe, if you have moral objections that, you know, I don't think that people should be held up with the government gun in order to, you know, fund social project, you know, programs, fine. But you still have this call as a Christian, a demand of someone who's received the grace of Christ to go and help, to serve them where they are. 
to hear the words of the Apostle Paul as he reminds the uh, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And the call to share that grace to the rest of the world, that, that is our calling. And those who are liberal, avoid the belief that. Your duty to the poor is taken care of on some Tuesday in November. That that is the sum total of your obligation. Even own the fact that, you know, if you're a liberal, the conservative who may be sitting next to you probably gives more to charity than you do, statistically speaking. And yes, that's adjusted for socioeconomic status. That there is a tendency for us to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm voting the right way, so I've done my duty to care for the poor. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. There is a call for you as an individual to go beyond voting for policies that won't cost you anything and won't affect you very much. To give in a way that hurts as Christ has given to you in a way that it hurts. And to all, Take a moment to stand in awe of the goodness and the graciousness of God. In the giving of his son, yes, it's offensive. Yes, it says something about you. Yes, it, it declares about your life that apart from the grace of God, apart from the giving of the son, that you could not get it right. That you could not stand before him. That you could not uh, live as God has called you to live. That you could not be the person that he's called you to be. Yes, it's offensive, but it's one that it's out of love. That if you, if you see the, the goodness of God in the giving of his son, the cost of him to provide this for you, that you'd stand in awe. He is that good. That good to give his son for you. And to all, to hear the, the demand, the implicit demand, that as God has given his son for you, that God has given lavishly and generously and for those who have repeatedly, undeniably rejected him, who've shaken their fists to heaven and yet have received this gift that to go out, to be his people, to go and be likewise to a world that is lost and lonely and broken. To go and save the weak and the powerless and the botched, to rescue those who have no help other than you, and so to be Christ to the world, so that through him, or through you, that he would be glorified, and the world would see what he was like through these people whom he's called by his name. With that, I'd like to uh, invite up uh, Don as we prepare to take communion. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your word would go forward to your people, that we would hear all that you say to us through the gift of your Son, that we would in him find the offense, but also find the, the grace, and take comfort in your grace to us. Lord, as we prepare to take communion, we ask that your presence would meet with us, that you would cleanse us. And in all that you would glorify yourself through these people whom you've called by your name, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.